0: Is it Rolling Bob? Talking Dylan. He's your host,
1: Lucas Hare. He's your host, Kerry Shale.
0: But he's our guest, founding member of the
2: Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, Jeff Hanna. So long, honey babe. Where I'm bound, I can't tell. But goodbye's too good a word, babe. So I'll just say, fare thee well. I ain't saying you treated me unkind. You could have done better, but I don't mind. You just kind of wasted my precious time, but don't think twice. It's all right.
0: Jeff, uh, welcome and thank you. And why did you choose those lyrics?
2: I think that was the first Dylan song that really had a serious impact on me. I was a kid. I was a teenager living in California when I heard that. And as a guitarist, his finger picking bit that he did on that was really appealing and me and all my guitar playing buddies, us little folk puppies from Southern California. That was a rite of passage to be able to learn that guitar figure that Bob played on that. So it was a combination of the music and the lyrics, which has always drawn me to his scene. So you were were what, 16, 17?
0: How old were you back then?
2: 16, I believe. Then I actually got to see him play in December of 1964. He came to my town, to Long Beach, California. And he played in a high school auditorium. It was just a few months before he electrified and got a band. He was that cool hip Bob Dylan, you know. That was another thing that really drew me to him. Is we all came up as huge folk music fans in search of the holy grail of the song or the, the musician or the singer. A lot of what we admired came before, you know, folks like Doc yeah. Watson and Earl Scruggs and a lot of the great folk artists, Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee, Mississippi John Hurt. They were all folks from a generation older than us. But when Bob Dylan appeared on the scene, he was a guy that could have been, you know, this is all during the British invasion musically. You guys even use that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Worldwide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it was a musical revolution. And with the Beatles and the Stones hitting our shores and the kinks, Dylan kind of, He was visually a really hip, cool guy and just a few years older than me, I might point Mm. out. So there was that and then the music. The combination of the two was really, really appealing.
1: Did you have any sense in December 64 that he was on the cusp of anything? Because The only reason I ask is because you saw him about a month before he started recording Bringing It All Back Home when, when, of course, everything changed. And I often wonder with those first four yeah. albums, they're not all of a type, you know, towards the end, you're getting longer, more sort of visionary songs like Chimes of Freedom and Mr. Tambourine Man. Did, did that feel like a shift away from yeah. the kind of Woody Guthrie-esque years or was it all very much one chapter to you?
2: I think in the beginning, he was, I mean, that first album, his eponymous album, which I love, by mm. the way, still, there's only two original tunes on that. in New York City, is that right? Yep. And Song to Woody. Yep. I love both those songs. But he hadn't yet found himself as a writer. But he did reveal himself as a really cool guitar player, singer, and harmonica player. So that part of the puzzle was already in place. I think on Mr. Tambourine Man, for example, you're hearing that gorgeous uh, Bruce Langhorne's guitar stuff. Mm. So there's a second guitarist in the room, too. But um, in terms of his progression as an artist, you know, there was that arc, as you guys pointed out, just before bringing it all back home you could kind of feel it I think part of it too is is what was around him as an artist when he made that leap and it wasn't in retrospect that leap doesn't seem as huge as it seemed at the time but when you had the birds recording his songs it seemed only natural that he was taking part chimes of freedom and my back pages and you know God, I mean, if if there was ever a perfect match of artist and writer, it was the Birds and Dylan. I think.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, so you
2: were you were in a jug band, and that was that your first group. Yeah, uh, in high school, I, my best friend was a guy named Bruce Kunkel, and Bruce and I, again of the time, we had our we were a little folk duo, you know, and sang what we w- would consider to be kind of commercial folk songs of the day. As we became seniors in high school, and we're all we're both like seventeen, we got interested in jug band music. I, I think the British equivalent would be skiffle, yeah. right? Yeah, and it's great fun <laughs> with the washboards and the kazoo's and the acoustic <laughs> instruments, wash tub bass sometimes. So that had great appeal to us. So we had a high school jug band. was called the Illegitimate Jug Band, and after we graduated from high school, I met some other guys. We started talking about having a band, but we didn't wanna you know, get the bass and the drums and the electric guitars. I said, have you guys ever played Jugman music? And none of them had, but they all really liked it. So we started right up, Bruce Kunkel and myself, and a guy named Les Thompson, a guy named Ralph Barr, a guy named Jimmy Fadden, who's still in our band to this day. Then a few weeks after we got started, this kid we knew that was a songwriter named Jackson Brown joined the band. That was the Jug Band. And after a few months, Jackson went off to pursue his singer-songwriter dream, which, of course, we all know how yeah. that worked
1: out. Great. Did you and he talk about Dylan? I mean, you I think your first paid gig was May 66, which is... Uh the same week as the Judas thing over here in Manchester. I mean, did you and Jackson Brown ever, oh my gosh, ever that's right. did you and Jackson Brown discuss what Dylan was up to and and things like that as fans? Oh gosh,
2: Dylan was a uh, he was like our our north star, you know. He was always in the conversation. Have you heard the new record? No internet back then, so things didn't get said or commented on at lightning speed like they are yeah. now. So it would have been in the press, right? And we heard about the backlash. Of course, you know, had the backlash already happened at Newport. So we were fully on board, I might add. Maybe because we were kids and we were rooting for our hero, Bob, you know, when he got the electric guitars out, some of the guys in his band, in that band, I should say, at Newport, subsequently became friends of mine, Al Cooper Mm -hmm. in particular. So... We thought that was pretty cool, and we certainly loved bringing it all back home, and then later on, Highway 61 revisited. That all suited him really well. You know, he was a rocker from the get-go, before he was a folky.
0: Speaking of rockers, I did find one little esoteric fact, just checking out the your earlier years. Now, I don't know if you even remember this, but this was, I read this in print, that you, uh, at one point in those early years, you opened for Little Richard?
2: Oh, Yeah. That was fantastic. It was actually, you know, it was the silver lining for the gig because we were playing a casino in Las Vegas, Caesars Palace. Oh, This would have been maybe 1969 or 70. And we opened for Little Richard for like three weeks and got to know him really well. We were huge fans, you know. As a kid, in terms of impact, Richard was right up there with Elvis for me. And it was, of course, the Everly Brothers, which is obvious. For any kid that likes to sing rock and roll with harmony, we all name check the Everleys for mm-hmm. sure. But Little Richard, Buddy Holly, Fats Domino, Elvis Presley. So getting to share a stage with him, we didn't actually get to jam. But I, you I got so. to hang out backstage with him. Oh my gosh, we got to hang out with him a lot. And he was a who crazy flamboyant, hilarious guy. And good lord, man. Again, there's a handful of guys from that era, you know, Jerry Lee Lewis. Fast Domino come to mind. Man, the power that they brought to their playing and the groove on the piano was remarkable. Plus, Little Richard, what an influence, but a huge influence on every mm. I mean, we never did. You know, we probably played Good Golly, Miss Molly once or twice mm. during a check or something. But the impact and the power of what he brought to rock and roll is Undeniable and, and a
1: huge influence on, on, the on yeah. Dylan. I mean, when he died, Bob Dylan tweeted, for crying out loud. You know, it was, that was shocking enough. Little Richard was, was one of his first uh, role models and idols, wasn't he? Chuck Berry's in there, too. Yeah, And by the way, we
2: played gigs with Chuck Berry and Fast Domino and Jerry Lee over the years. Wow. So lucky us. Mm. I mean, that's the thing. This has been a ticket to a lot of really great life experiences for our band. I mean, getting to go out and play is one thing and we're so grateful to be able to do something we love for a living but man those circle records with earl Squiggs yeah. and doc watson and mother Maybelle carter it's been a really crazy life and we've gotten to sort of hang out in rooms all various different kinds of places and i think that's part of the beauty of music there's this community this fraternity as it were that's just Else. Well, I
1: stuck on volume two of, of Will Circle Be Unbroken the other day, and I was just blown away to hear the first three singers on the first three songs. You know, Johnny Cash, John Prine, Leave on Helm. <laughs> That's yeah. not too shabby.
2: Yeah, not too shabby. And again, lucky yes, we knew all of those artists. I mean, John Prine in the early years when he and Steve Goodman, the late great Steve Goodman, great singer-songwriter as well. They were best friends from Chicago. And we played Tons of shows with those two guys. So the circle thing, we'd already known John for many, many years. Johnny Cash, that was part of the through line with the Carter family. A little background for the Carter family's impact on me. Mabel Carter could very well have been my first guitar hero. As I was learning to properly play an acoustic guitar, I had a <laughs> this is all before YouTube, kids. <laughs> I had A Pete Seeger instructional LP. And one of the things that Pete taught all of us students how to play was Wildwood Flower, which was Maybell's thing. You know, the Carter, they call that guitar style the Carter scratch. You use your thumb to play the melody and you strum the strings to play the rhythm at the same time. It was unique and I mean, so inventive and so cool. So because of you know, we were already, when we did the First Circle record recorded in summer of 71 here in Nashville, um, we were already huge fans of Maybell's. And when Earl Scruggs one day said, how would you guys feel about having Maybell come in and play some tunes with us? We were just blown away. And again, right there, Wildwood Flower.
1: What do you say? Keep on I mean, the sunny side. Jesus Christ. I mean, I, to, to have her in the room with you, and, and presumably you got to say some of this stuff to her a little bit, and just have her there is incredible. It it wasn't crazy. I
2: mean, I literally, I'm getting chills talking about it. She was was regal. (laughs) She was regal. She came in and she was the queen of country music. I mean, I know that those kind of phrases get thrown around a lot, especially in the world of music. But, and she was also, it was funny. She wasn't afraid to crack a joke and, and sort of put us at ease, but her continence was so... She was really kind of angelic in a way, you know. We stopped cussing <laughs> <and> cursing <laughs> as, soon as, as soon as she, we, all, we were all on our best behavior, but in a great way because it didn't feel oppressive. It was more like the respect that you pay for somebody like that when they
1: walk in the And this presumably created the right working atmosphere for when Roy Acuff came in as well, right?
2: Well, yeah, that was a different thing. He kind of put us, he, he took us to task a little bit, and I think there's a moment on that circle record where he talks about it. You know, he says, let's get it in the first take, boys, mm. because, you know, basically because, you know, if you give it your all in the first couple of takes, eventually you can start wearing that out. You start running the tread off the tires a little bit as a singer. And, he, you know, and that was a good point. Most of the takes on that album are first and second takes. We were in a room full of genius musicians and they, they raised the level of, of our play as well. You know they, there's a great phrase and i can't remember who to attribute this to somebody said always be the worst musician in your band because you'll always learn something and in that room we had folks like the legendary fiddler vassar clements earl scruggs on the five-string banjo junior husky on upright bass on acoustic bass brother oswald pete kirby on dobro or norman blake two great dobro players norman's a great guitarist as well you know randy scruggs on guitar it was incredible and all, all the guests that would come in you know folks like uh jimmy martin or doc watson it was we all played above our heads it was great rising tide lifts all boats
0: can i just go back for a sec jeff Sure. just for for people who don't no, because I, w- I was introduced to uh, Will the Circle Be Unbroken, your groundbreaking triple album uh, many, many years ago. But, you know, some people might not know it. And just to set things up f- for me, and I've got I've got a question, a big question, which is, I mean, back then. So I'm, I'm a couple of years younger than you, but I, uh, you know, was growing my hair long back. This is summer of 71. And the division between the long hairs and the straights was so Huge. And I'm just talking about It was profound. It was profound. Yeah. I mean and there was a lack of trust. Like, you know, my dad barely spoke to me and I didn't speak to anybody over a certain age. I basically didn't speak to anybody who didn't have long hair. And I didn't trust them. I didn't like them. I didn't respect them. The birds were booed when they played the Grand Old Opry in sixty eight, you know, as as yeah. hippie long hairs. Yeah. So the generation gap was really a thing and there's you guys i've seen pictures of you you know uh you all had really long hair you you basically couldn't have looked you had a handlebar mustache you couldn't have looked more like a dirty california hippie although it was a clean shirt that you were wearing but there must have been a hell of a lot of tension at the beginning or was it all did you bond over the music immediately or was there a lot of suspicion and you know distrust in the air
2: I'll tell you an interesting thing is that, and again, we're talking about pop culture here. The film Easy Rider had come out not that long before we went to Nashville. I can't remember the exact year, but it would have been within a year Mm -hmm. or several months before the entire band went to see a screening of that at the Westwood theater in Southern California. And, you know, we sat in that theater. There was total stunned silence.
0: So basically, the rednecks the kill the hippies, for those people who don't know the film.
2: Oh, no. Somebody, and and after what seemed like a minute, it was probably 30, 40 seconds of silence. People were stunned. A guy got up in the theater and said, fuck the South. And then more silence after that. It, it was just like, holy crap. So having, <laughs> being a kid from Southern California and having actually never been been to the southern part of the U.S., and having also, as a teenager, being a huge supporter and participant in the civil rights Mm -hmm. movement as a kid. Mm -hmm. You know, we were marching. I had my preconceptions, some of which bore a lot of truths about the South. But that film was, it was creepy. So the next thing I know, hey, you boys are going on a tour, a college tour of the southern United States. (laughs) So, you know, we had our we had some moments of apprehension. Now, we'd already been doing that for several months by the time we got to Nashville and when we met the Scruggs family. And
1: mm-hmm.
2: Nashville, I should point out, is a fairly liberal part of the state of Tennessee, as is Memphis, I should point mm-hmm. out. We live in a red state here, but, you know, not to delve into politics, but more about the, as you said, the cultural gap and the generation gap and the music gap. So let me give you a brief telling of the story of how the circle. Please, As I pointed out earlier, we all came up through folk music, all the individuals in our band. And folks like Doc Watson and Earl Scruggs and Mabel Carter were our heroes. So when we played Vanderbilt University on, on one of the stops on, on this college tour we were doing in 1970, we, through chance really, One of the students at Vanderbilt University was a kid named Gary Scruggs. Well, he happened to be the oldest son of Earl and Louise Scruggs. So he and his brothers had become fans of our bands because of this hit song, Mr. Bojangles, that was out on the radio here. But Gary picked up the record and and noticed that we had recorded an instrumental that his dad wrote called Randy Lynn Ray. So Gary convinced his whole family to come to the show. And we met Earl Scruggs and Randy and Gary and Louise Scruggs that night, and we became friends. And Earl, after a couple hours of hanging out and talking and playing music a little bit as well, on the way out the door said, if you boys ever wanted to do some recording, I'd really love to do that. So wow. <laughs> the door closes and we all looked at each other and said, what just happened? <laughs> right? So... When we came to Nashville, and I'm I'm leaving a big chunk of the story out, but the point I'm making is is when we finally got in the studio with Earl Scruggs and Jimmy Martin and Maybell and Vassar Clements, you know I looked at Jimmy Martin, and you know some of us thought, "Wow, he kind of looks like the guys that <laughs> killed Peter Fonda." <laughs> but like you said a few minutes ago. Once the music started, it all fell away. There was this, you know, don't judge a book by its cover. And yeah, we were, (laughs) even though we had just recently moved to Colorado, we had relocated. We were the long-haired hippies from the West Coast getting in the studio. We weren't talking politics. I know Roy Acuff was a pretty conservative guy. You know, he invited Richard Nixon to the Grand Ole Opry and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But the point at that point was there was a lot to divide us at that point. And we felt like, well, we have this common ground, which is music. And we just, there was a lot of joy going on in that studio. And it, it did, you know, just as a life lesson, it did, you know, kind of destroy some of our preconceptions because somebody talks a certain way or looks a certain way, does not necessarily tell you, what you're getting as a human and music is so fragmented and genre specific now that it might sound kind of antiquated to say well you know we were a rock and roll band but we were a rock and roll band in 1971 you know we were playing on tours with bands like Aerosmith and ZZ Top at the time so that was a typical it was before the country music career that happened later and Interestingly, the music that we were playing did not change much from what we started playing in, uh, when we started playing country rock in 69, when we shifted from the jug band music to country mm. rock, California country rock, I'll call it, that kind of became the basis of what we're still doing today, as far as the style.
1: Well, I was, uh, I was listening to your new album on Apple Music, and it calls it traditional country. <laughs> that's, that's, you that is the genre know, just you've, so you know you've gone from you know various genre defying uh, moments in your life and you've you finally in 2022 arrived at traditional country I'm here to tell you.
2: well they gotta they have to find a slot don't they yeah. you know yeah. and I I guess if you consider Dwight Yoakam traditional country too it all I mean it all kind of makes sense but when we're sitting around playing a, we, we did a gig the other night at the Ryman Auditorium here in Nashville and we had a brilliant five-string banjo player named a woman named Allison Brown sat in with us. And she was a one of the early members of Union Station with Allison Krause. Oh, yeah. Very progressive musician, I might add. She comes from technically from the bluegrass world. Mm-hmm. And also on the same night, Larry Campbell and his wife Teresa Williams, great musical couple, really incredible, great singers, songwriters. But Larry played, he spent eight years playing with Bob yeah. Dylan. And he also was largely responsible, I think, for Levon Helm's comeback after the throat cancer at the beginning of the century. And he did those great records, you know, uh, Dirt Farmer and Electric Dirt and Ramble at the Ryman. All Grammy Award winning records. Really something. So Larry and Teresa kind of come from, you know, what we would call the Americana world or Roots music world. So the definition of <laughs> you know, uh, categorizing things under like traditional country, which by the way, I love whatever that is. You know, I'm a huge fan of Haggard and Jones and Loretta Lynn, mm-hmm. Mother Maybelle Carter, mm-hmm. and Johnny mm-hmm. Cash, but I don't know what those labels mean on a
1: a streaming service. Oh, know. they mean nothing.
2: Well, you know, it's also, you know, the old joke about, I don't care what you call us as long as you call us. Don't call us late for but dinner. Exactly. Don't call us late for dinner. But within country music but, but alone,
1: I... there's a whole, there are tiers and levels of snobbery within country music. And there are critics who will mm-hmm. tell you which bits of, of country music it's okay to like. And that's all it is. It's, you know, it's all it's all music. And it's all, a lot of it's really good music. It doesn't really matter.
2: I agree. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think that, you're going to find your, your musical tribe. And hopefully that's a big tent. That's the way I look at it. I, I feel as if every era of music, and I say this now being a, a guy that's been on the planet a while, every era has stuff that you go, man, that's amazing. And then right next to it is something you, you dis- dismiss mm. and lost to the dustbin of, of history, you know? So you know, you're drawn to certain things, and then there's the the strange sort of you revisit stuff that you turned your nose up at years ago. I mean, I've been guilty of this, and you sort of find yourself going, "That was pretty good. How did I miss that?" <laughs> so, you know, yeah, that's part of the equation as well. Well, it's,
0: it's talking about history, I, we both rewatched the uh, the Ken Burns History of Country Music episode that you guys were featured in that the uh, Will the Circle Be Unbroken original album was featured in. I thought they made some really good points in it. Um, one one of them was that, um, you know, in the 60s, where Bluegrass hadn't... The first time Bluegrass, as far as the uh, Ken Burns documentary says, the first time Bluegrass really broke through was the Flatten & Scruggs version of the Beverly Hillbillies theme song that everybody right. loved. And, and didn't, I, I remember hearing it when I was a kid thinking, just, I still know it, you know, I know every word of it. It was just so... So it makes you happy. Yeah, doesn't it? it's just yeah. so catchy, you know. And I thought, who are these people, Flat and Scruggs? You know, and that was a, it was a great way for for them to sort of break through. You know, so much stuff sort of just came from that, and from Foggy Mountain Breakdown being featured in Bonnie and
2: Clyde. Oh, that was a see, that was the big bang, I think. But you know, the Bonnie and Clyde was a great film. I love that mm. movie, and the way they incorporated Foggy Mountain Breakdown into the film was perfect. But You didn't have the visual of Flatten Scruggs, who actually appeared on camera, I believe, you know, a couple of times during the Beverly Hillbillies. So that was awfully cool. And I think up until that point, and on the Andy Griffith show a few years later, you had two great bluegrass bands. The first one was the Kentucky Colonels with the late, great Clarence White and his brother Roland White as well. They were one of the original bluegrass bands, sort of. The characters were the darlings on Andy Griffith, you know, the Hillbillies. But that was, I mean, Clarence was legendary, you know. I mean, he was one of the, you know, played with the birds on that great, that live album from Royal Albert Hall, which is amazing. And Clarence's B-bender guitar and, oh, crazy. But he also, as a kid, he started as a bluegrass picker, And then later on, the Dillards were the sort of make-believe bluegrass band on Andy Griffith as well. There's your pop culture yeah. I mean, a weekly television show when there were only three networks, what was the film that you guys in the early days were you guys the Nitty Gritty
0: Dirt Band was was in a film, a Hollywood film? I can't remember what it was now. Paint
2: Your Wagon, oh, yeah. a Learner and Low musical from Broadway yeah. that they brought to the big screen. It shot on location in in a national forest in Oregon in the summer of 1968, starring Lee Marvin, Clint Eastwood. In the late Gene Seberg, who was just an amazing actress, and and you know, ironically, she was in all those Godard, uh, yeah. Jean Luc. He just he just he just died. Yeah. Not, yeah, I think this week. Did you hang around with Clint
0: um, and Lee?
2: They were all really kind and gracious. But of the three of them, the one that hung out the most was Lee Marvin, which we got a great kick out of because we were hugely Marvin fans. But we were hired to basically play a kind of a jug band. So our band, we played a song with Lee Marvin called Hand Me Down That Can of Beans. And it's a bunch of miners are dancing around in the mud and it was pretty hilarious and it was fun. And we were extras in the film as well. We showed up kind of standing around in the background. But we were up in the wilds of Oregon for uh, three months doing that. At the time, it was the most expensive Hollywood film ever made. It was quite a deal, and was directed by Josh Logan, who directed Bus Stop with Marilyn Monroe. Right. I mean, there's a we were around all these legends, but we didn't know it because we weren't from the film world. You know, we were we hung out in clubs and played in clubs in L.A. The the Ash Grove and the Troubadour.
0: Well, speaking of clubs in L.A., this is a good segue. <laughs> um, uh, we wanted definitely wanted to ask you about Roger McGuinn, who uh, appeared on Volume sure. Two of uh, Will the Circle Be Unbroken. Luke, I know, has a big question for you. Hit it,
1: Luke. Well, I was listening to uh, this, and I noticed that he and I think Chris Hillman play You Ain't Going Nowhere, first time since Sweetheart of the Radio. Mm -hmm. But it's McGuinn's comment just beforehand that I, I listened to again, and I thought, is he saying what I think he's saying? He says to somebody else in the studio, could have been you, don't know, this song was written right after he had his motorcycle accident. He was sitting up in Woodstock and he was waiting for Sarah to come up and see him. And he was immobile. He couldn't. He had a broken neck. He couldn't go anywhere. That's why you ain't going nowhere. That's what it's all about. And I thought, is he trying to say that Bob Dylan composed this song either in a hospital bed or lying in the road waiting for help? Can you you shed any light on that, Jeff? No. <laughs> Very Dylan-esque. That was
2: It was kind of a cryptic remark. Yeah, um, yeah.
1: Because the first but, time I heard it, I thought he but, was just saying this song hails from the Woodstock era. He was kind of immobile. It was a quiet time. I thought, no, he's saying something else. He's saying he was waiting for Sarah and he realized he couldn't move because he had a broken neck. And he wrote this song.
2: Well, I think you guys just added something to the narrative. <laughs> because I, I heard it as... It was when he was in, when he became more of a reclusive figure and had moved to the country and was kind of recharging his batteries. That's what I was expecting. But he he definitely says
0: he had a broken neck. Now, he may just be extrapolating.
2: If we're going to, we can, man, we can analyze every morsel of that sandwich. (laughs) You guys know better, way better than I do it's
0: always going to remain a mystery until we get Roger McGuinn on we're going to uh, and he probably doesn't even remember saying it but um, here's a question answered or not but uh, this goes back to the sort of long hair hippie thing now you know when I was a long haired hippie pretty much a day didn't go by where I didn't smoke some dope. and wondering if there was any of that going on at the time or if you kept it out in the alleyway oh when we did circle yeah certainly the first one
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, not, I mean, I I mean, I have to be honest, my drug career <laughs> <laughs> in 1971, I pro- I probably wasn't smoking a whole lot of dope. One of the guys in the band, that was kind of a his cup of coffee, mm-hmm. but a lot of it was behind. I, I would say the, the Nashville folks in the studio, and there's one or two of them that, that might be an exception, were not, you know, sure. smoking sure. pot but their kids were, <laughs> So you know what I'm saying? So, I mean, you'd already seen this kind of evolution and revolution going on. You know, a lot of my friends, a lot of our generation folks mm-hmm. that we met during the making of that record, some of them being Earl's sons, Randy and Gary. Gary Scruggs, who just passed away recently, great guy. He and his brother, Randy, they were just a couple of years Gary was just a few months younger than me. Randy was a couple of years younger than me. You know, we were going through our little experimental drug phase stuff. Some of my contemporaries are still, I, I, I'm not a big pot smoker. I liked it in the early days when it was skunk weed. It was just, it was fun. But again, there were folks in that community of musicians, John Hartford, the Newgrass revival. These are all folks that are, that we got to mm-hmm. know really mm-hmm. From hanging out in Nashville in the early seventies, <laughs> that was a lot of pot smoking going on back then, for
0: sure. Carlene Carter talks in the um, Ken Burns History of Country Music. League. She just tells one little thing where she says uh, the Mother Maybelle said to her, "I like that song." One took over the line, "Sweet Jesus," and, <laughs> and Carlene <laughs> said, "Grandma, that's what do you think that's about?" And she said, "Oh well, it's a gospel song."
2: I just <laughs> I love that. I love Carlene. Carlene's one of my <laughs> favorites. It was Carlene that told me. That Maybell referred to us. Oh, you know what? It might, it wasn't Carlene. It was her mama, June Carter Cash, yeah. that told me that Mother Maybell referred to us as them dirty boys with a big smile <laughs> on her face she <laughs> loved us. I just love them dirty boys. They're, they're, they're good boys. I just thought that was so and, and again, that kind of illustrates what I spoke about a little while ago. She was so sweet. And she was, you know, she was Carlene's grandma. So. I love
0: that, Them Dirty Boys. Oh, yeah,
1: And that takes us neatly into Dirt Does Dylan. All right. Tell us about the, the origins of, of that album.
2: Oh, man. Well, I mean, the, if you're doing an archaeological dig, it goes all the way back to when we were teenagers and became fans of Dylan's. Actually, somebody from our management company said, you know, have you considered, like, doing a record of Dylan tunes? And we thought, well, we'd never done a single source songwriter, record Mm -hmm. before, And there's so many great ways to go. Obviously, you know, everybody from Joni Mitchell to John Prine, for example, Mm -hmm. um, Leonard Cohen. But then we kept coming back to Dylan and it seemed logical. Obviously, you know, this is not the first time anybody's ever done a Dylan cover record, but because of our, again, specifically because of my, my history with Jimmy Fadden and our great, you know, admiration for for Dylan's music and also being well aware of the fact that Dylan's music can take you in a hundred different musical directions. The appeal became apparent and we'd already recorded, as you pointed out, You Ain't Going Nowhere on the Circle Volume 2 with Chris and Roger. So we had one under our belts that we played. We started our set off with it often. Mm-hmm. So we got we thought, you know, that, that could be cool. That, what's going to matter is, is what tunes we cast with our band. Um, so we took a long list, whittled it down, started with 80 songs or so. This is out of hundreds, and they're all great, as you know. By the time we got in the studio, with, I should point out, with Ray Kennedy, legendary engineer and record producer, Steve Earle, mm-hmm. Lucinda mm-hmm. Williams, has been their producer or co-producer for many, many years. And a great guy. We'd never worked with Ray. We'd been friends for years, but not had the opportunity to get in the studio and make a record. So we got in there at the beginning of 2020, you know, timing was not great as you guys know, Mm -hmm. we're seeing this cloud is coming across the horizon, which is COVID. So we got in the studio in March of 2020, started working on these tunes and the songs that felt great and natural for our band and the way we play and sing are what ended up on the record we recorded three or four other tracks that we may or may not at some point you know do something with but it became like you know it was like putting on a a great old jacket or a pair of boots or jeans you know it it felt right it fit fit great so that's how those 10 songs ended up on dirt Dust Dylan.
0: Well, they're all great. And the uh, the Back Porch vibe. The, Thank you so yeah, much. They're, ju- they're just uh, terrific. And it's, it's an interesting, uh, the, but there's nothing on their past. I think it's, well, Forever Young is probably the last, is that 72, 73? The most recent. Yeah, the most recent. Yeah. So you've got a huge, If I mean, I don't know if there's any possibility of another uh, volume, but you've certainly got uh, a lot more. Oh, yeah. Can, uh, well, design.
2: it's almost like. You could call the album Dirt Does Some Dylan. (laughs) And it wasn't, we didn't set out to do sort of Dirt Sings Dylan songs, you know, in a large part, certainly. Country Pie is probably the most obscure tune on there. It was the way these things landed. We didn't want to do Bob's greatest hits, although in some ways it ended up that way. But there are also songs that Bob doesn't do. So, you know, that part worked out. Mm. There's a they there's were, a great version right of Times
0: the They Are opinion. A Change In, which is uh, really, I think, it feels very modern. And uh, it's not a, s- not a song I listen to that much anymore because I just know it so well. But hearing your version with uh, Jason Isbell and Roseanne Cash and Steve Earle. And The War and, the war and Treaty. Yes, Fantastic. that's right. And your wife, I think, uh, Matrisa Berg, also plays. Does she play harp on it, I think?
2: Well, she also sang harmony um, on that track. She's, she's the two-part harmony with Roseanne their friends and that was great i'm glad they got to do that together
0: well i hope we'll uh, one day we'll get to hear uh or will we ever get to hear a um will the circle volume four or is that have you put Uh, the lid on that
2: never say never Mm -hmm. Yeah, we don't know the three records that we made and and there's sort of in a in a sense there's a fourth record because there's a live album we recorded at the ryman auditorium that came out in 2016 that was called circle and back and it had a bunch of our amazing musical genius friends on it like Jerry Douglas and Sam Bush, Byron House on bass, in addition to our band and several amazing, incredible guests, John Prine, Jerry Jeff Walker, Allison Krauss, Vince Gill, Rodney Crowell, to name a few folks that were on that album. And, and it was, gosh, it was so much fun. But we did a lot of the circle music on that record. It was kind of a career spanning. It was also celebrating our 50th year as a band. That kind of felt like the encore, you know, for the Circle Records to me. But again, you get in the studio with somebody like, you know, the Warren Treaty and Jason Isbell and you start thinking, well, you know, this next generation, pretty amazing, right? I could spend 20 minutes talking about who could be on that record if we did another one. You know, Steve Earle would be a great choice. I think Lucinda Williams would be a great choice.
1: I <laughs> want to hear that record.
2: <laughs> yeah, you know, I kind of want to hear that record too. So <laughs> we'll keep talking about it. But the Dylan, the Dylan thing was so much fun. Oh my gosh! One, one other sort of technical, sort of scheduling thing about the record was: eight of the ten tracks were recorded right before the curtain came down with COVID. Mm-hmm. March. We In fact, the band went out and played (laughs) our first and last shows of 2020 were March 11th and 12th. We got on the bus after the sessions, went and played these two shows, came home March 13th, Friday the 13th, and that was it. The curtain came down that weekend. It was like the entire music business stopped. The world kind of stopped, didn't it? So when we got back in the studio, me and Ray Kennedy got back in the studio in the summer of, of 2020, Nobody's touring at this point, very few people, you know, maybe kind of under the radar. So, we're wondering, are we ever going to finish this record? Will our band ever tour again? Nobody knew what was going on. You know, 2020 was a crazy year. But we started listening to these tracks and we thought, man, times are changing, sure is good. So, that's when we got in the studio. I had sung all the verses on the tracking session for that record. And it was very clear to us because we talked to Jason. Jason and I have been friends for about 10 years. And we'd all, we always talk about, let, let's get in the studio and do something. That's just what musicians do. Same thing with the war and treaty. Michael and Tanya Trotter. Amy Lou Harris had introduced us a couple of years prior to that. And I called them up and said, would you like to sing on this track? And they were thrilled and, and, and so gracious. Came in and just, oh, you know, did a killer job. On that third, on that uh, one, two, three, fourth verse, Roseanne Cash and Steve Earle actually recorded their vocals in New York City, which is where they both live. Uh, So their vocals were done remotely. We put it all together and actually released it as a charity single in February of 2021. So that that really got us inspired to finish the whole record. It took a while to get done, but I'm glad it did. You know, it's 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 one thing when you go out and on stage and you say, hey, we're going to play one from the new album, which is, you know, it's a running gag in our business. That's when everyone gets up to get a beer. But with Bob Dylan, most folks don't want to miss that, which is pretty great. <laughs> you know? Everybody loves Dylan's music.
0: Is it Rolling Bob Talking Dylan? Is recorded back home in Studio 3 at Lip Sync Studios.
1: Engineered by Tom Stringer and produced by Robin Guise. Digital Imaging by Guys. Music is by Sam Hare. We're part of Pantheon Podcasts, the music
0: podcast network. Find us on Twitter at IsItRollingPod. Things sure don't look too pretty. Cause a man to rob and steal. I got a full six more months out here. Can't be begging for my meals. Now look here, baby Snooks. Doesn't matter what books you keep underneath your seat. Six months in Kansas City down on Liberty Street.